1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you very much for being with us at New Books Network. Today, we're looking or discussing the uh, book, The Corporation and the 20th Century The History of American Business Enterprise by uh, Princeton University Press by Richard Languas. Um, Richard was born and raised in Northeastern Connecticut and educated at Williams College, Yale, and Stanford. He received his PhD in 1981 from the Department of Engineering Economic Systems at Stanford, now part of the Department of Management and Science Engineering, with the late Nathan Grossenberg as member of his dissertation committee. Before joining the University of Connecticut in 1983, he was affiliated with the Department of Economics at the Center for Science and Technology Policy at New York University. He has been adjunct Honorary Professor at Copenhagen Business School and a Distinguished Professor at the University of Witstand Whit- in Johannesburg, South Africa. His primary work has been in the economics of organization. We have been pu- pushing and publishing on the theory of dynamic transaction cost and the theory of modular systems, as well as in economic and business history. His 1992 History of Microcomputer Industry won the Newcomer Award, the Best Paper for Business History Review. Um, Previous books include Firms, Market, and Economic Change, A Dynamic Theory of Business Institutions by Rutledge in 1995, published with Paul Robertson, and The Dynamic of Industrial Capitalism, Schumpeter, Chandler, and the New Economy, and the Grass Lectures uh, as part of the Grass uh, Schumpeter Lectures, uh, published by Rutledge in 2007, which won the Schumpeter Prize for International um, uh, Joseph A. Schumpeter Society. Uh, Richard, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Bernardo. I'm I'm delighted to be here. Um, it's really, really a, a pleasure being able to to talk to you about your work, and, and particularly this part of your work, which I have personally been following for for some time. But um, so, just briefly to to start, would you tell us how was it that you decided to become an academic?
1: An academic. Well, it was. I think it was something that I'm. Uh, I fell into more than anything else. I, as as you said, I graduated from this rather strange department at Stanford, which was not an economics department, it was not a history department, it was a department that kind of recycled people like me who had had a, a training in, in science. I was a physics um, major as an undergraduate, and, and uh, I kind of recycled us towards social sciences, and that's where I discovered economics and became interested in economics. So, kind of uh, moved in that direction. But well, after I finished, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I actually even looked at consulting a little bit, but uh, which is what most of the people in the department did. But I fell into this job at NYU. Uh, I had some money from the CD Star Center um, and some money from the Center for Science and Technology Policy and putting that together. I I had Ah, uh, various pots of money, and I stayed at NYU for three years, and basically laundered my credentials uh, to go on the uh, economics job market, and and ended up uh, at the uh, University of Connecticut, uh, very near where I started out in life uh, in uh, in 1983. So I'm sort
0: of an ac- accidental academic in some ways. Yes, well, aren't, aren't many of us in 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 that respect. But thank uh, you so so. Before we go into the subject of the book, what, you know, you've, you've published mostly articles, but um, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, also a couple of important books and, and one of them a prize winning book. So what sort of uh, advice would you share with early career researchers uh, about writing a book and selecting a publisher?
1: Well, that, that, uh, I guess it depends a lot on who the person is and what the what the field is. I, I guess what I learned from writing a book, and especially maybe this book, is that you should, first of all, find a good idea and then write the book for yourself. Now, that's easier to say if you've got tenure. If you're writing a book that, that's going to be your tenure book or something, uh, that might not be good advice. But I wrote this book for myself. Um, I wasn't very worried about whether it would be successful or whether other people liked it. I wrote it because I felt I had something to say and that I was enjoying uh, the process of doing it. I think the other thing that I've learned that I often tell people about writing is that you you really learn through writing. And so if you have an idea but you don't know all the details uh, yet, I find it not to be a good idea to try to do all the research ahead of time and know all the details and then write. I think you should dive into the writing, and that will force you to find the details. Uh, That's really what I did with this book. I had an idea, and I just marched through history uh, doing the research I had to do to get the story right and to get all the facts right, and I sort of learned the history by writing about it uh, rather than first learning it and then writing about it.
0: I, and let's let in, in 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 that um perspective in a way a number of the themes or perhaps the main theme in the book is a continuation or digging deeper into your 2003 paper the vanishing hand which i will add to the uh, a link to the notes so why why is it that it you know, it, there was uh, this long for you to decide to write a book, or was it that it was a book that took uh, long, that was long in the making?
1: Well, in some ways the, that paper was turned into a book. Uh, you mentioned the Graz Schumpeter Lectures, which I think was 2006, and uh, that that those lectures were based on The Vanishing Hand and several other things that I had done. And that got put into a very slim uh, volume that the the Schumpeter people at the University of Graz had had been putting out it was a whole series that you know every year they would have these lectures. So that was in some ways uh, in mm-hmm. in a book. I as I say in the preface of the book, what, what really triggered this which is which is I guess a continuation of the Vanishing Hand, but it's it's much more than that. Is that I was invited to a, a conference at Bocconi in 2014, and I started thinking about what I had written and what I could possibly write, and it occurred to me that there was kind of a lacuna in what I had done, and that is, if the, first of all, I, I guess I should tell people what this idea, The, the Vanishing Hand, is all about. I, the, the idea is that it's a, it's a conversation with Albert Chandler, who talked about the rise of the large managerial corporation in the 20th century and I reflected on the fact that at the end of the century the large vertically integrated corporation was going away and becoming much less vertical the corporation was becoming much less vertically integrated so that if uh, the rise of the corporation was the was uh, the visible hand, as Chandler called his book, managers uh, visibly running companies, the um, going away of that large firm organizational form was the vanishing hand. Well, what occurred to me was that why did it happen when it happened? So why didn't the the vanishing hand happen a lot earlier? Because my, my account, and we'll probably talk a lot more about this, my account is that the large corporation arose not because of some in, internal or inherent um, superiority of management. Right? Uh, many people view it as well. It's scientific planning and and management within large corporations could use science to plan economic activity more efficiently than the market. And my view, is, as as I'm sure we'll we'll talk about in a minute, um, is that that's not true, and that. Um, the, the reason the large Berkeley Integrated corporation arose, and when gets, I think, this part of the story right for the 19th, or 20th century, is that technology was changing rapidly. Well, technology was changing in a systemic way with the rise of the railroad, the telegraph, uh, the use of coal, large manufacturing industry. And that called for different kinds of organizational structures to manage the, the, this new technology. And decentralized institutions, what I call market-supporting institutions, but I think maybe calling them just decentralized institutions may be better, had a hard time, right? They were adapted to an earlier kind of economy, and it took them a while. Uh, Institutions don't adapt instantly, and it took them a while to adapt to this new technological reality. By contrast, firms, which which is, I think we will also discuss, firms are repositories of institutions. There's one way of thinking about the firm is that it's that, that it is a system of institutions that lies behind the corporate veil, and it is not in that, in some respects different from the kinds of market supporting institutions like contract. Um, uh, Right, Uh, adjudicating contracts, financial markets, all sorts of institutions that that are necessary for, for economic activity, those can take place within the corporation or they can take place more visibly in the decentralized context of a market. And so my story was, well, those decentralized institutions couldn't adapt rapidly, so firms arose as an alternative institutional structure that could adapt rapidly enough. So that raised the question. This is the question I began to consider in 2014. Why didn't they adapt after a while, right? Why well, you get to say the end of the 1920s, in some ways the, the decentralized institutions of the market could have, and as I think I say in the book, really did to some extent begin to adapt to the new reality. Uh, why did we see the large vertically integrated corporation actually take off after 1929 instead of go away? Why was there no, why was there no vanishing hand in 1929? And in fact, in the book, I kind of argue that, that there was a vanishing hand process going on during the 1920s so to, some, to some extent. Maybe that is vivid as it would be later in the century. Um, and I need to explain that and it occurred to me, as it was occurring to I think many people at that time, right after the Great Crash and so on, that the 20th century was a mess. Like right? the 20th century was was a disaster. Like right? the 20th century was the Great Depression. It was World War II. All of those things are not those those external events are not conducive. We're not conducive to. Market supporting institutions in the decentralized market economy. The Great Depression destroyed many nodes of coordination. The the New Deal and World War II were eras where uh, political modes of resource allocation superseded economic modes of resource allocation. So it's not, in some ways, it's not a fair fight, right? It's not. You've got these market-supporting institutions uh, that are visible in the world, in the economy. And you've got a similar set of institutions that exist inside of firms, not perfect substitutes, but substitutes, that are invisible, largely invisible. Uh, Why did we see the institutions, uh, most of economic activity, take place inside the firm? because those firms were better, again, better able to adapt to those crises. Uh, they were better able to adapt to the crises of the Great Depression and the New Deal and World War II. And it's only after World War II, when something like um, market system allocation become re- returns to the United States, that we start to see the
0: slow demise of the large vertically integrated corporations. So that was basically like
1: uh, inspiration for this work.
0: Thank you. And, and you've covered a number of, of quite a bit of the context of the book, but also, uh, some of my questions, but let, let, let me take a step back in, in the sense that what I think, and, and you, you set me right, but we're, we're talking about two, two things here. One of them is what is, you know, the, 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 um, central question from ronald coase in 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 his 1937 paper which is where does a firm you know if we have markets why do we have firms and and this this opens a one whole uh discussion and the, the the other the other part is well not only why do we have firms but why do we have big firms
1: right i mean coase is a, it, it is important to my story and and i invoke coase in the in the first chapter uh, in some ways, we invoke Coase against against Albert Chandler. Chandler tends to think of it in terms of uh, firms being, in many ways, superior to markets. And Coase saying, "Well, wait a minute, uh, there are trade-offs, and sometimes markets are better than firms, and sometimes firms are or better than markets." Now, Coase was not trying to explain, as you say, the large vertically integrated corporation. He was trying to re- explain the whole idea. Of a corporation that is why are people hired as employees rather than hired with piece rate contracts basically right so that's really what's going on in in Coase it's a much more theoretical and fundamental idea but uh, the the basic idea of Coase that that uh, there's a margin right there's a margin between What's done inside the firm and what's done outside the firm is, is is fundamental to thinking about the larger question of why do we have large firms rather than lots of lots of small firms, right? So I mean, firms never went away, right? The corporation, I guess I should say, certainly never went away. It's just that they became more focused; that they had less vertically integrated. There were fewer things going on inside the firm, more of economic activity or came to be came to take place through market contracting rather than through contract through transactions, you want to call them transactions within the boundaries of the, the firm. So I think Coase is in that sense uh, important to the to that market question as well.
0: And and this uh, and I'm not gonna uh, probably push it just mention it, but it also takes us to a path in 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 which we question what is actually a firm as um, I mean, you've you've discussed that in some of your writings. As is, you know, you you even the title of one of your your articles, which is a firm is not a collection of of contracts, uh, criticizing in, in in a way the work of of uh, Frank Knight, but it is something in a way that a lot of, a lot of our colleagues start their discussion as making an assumption of what is a firm and. And not really, I think, uh, questioning deep enough what is a firm, and and how is it that firms, corporations, which exist in the ninth during the industrial revolution and and the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, are different to uh, your productive organizations, family firms that existed before that, and and that's what takes us into what is managers. And, and and as you uh use of uh, very often in well, uh, using the book which is managerialism and we also have problems problems in the sense that there is no consensus for us to define what is a manager what you know what do they actually do how do we recognize them do do we need us uh you know where is it not a profession and and that the, 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 there is work around that but but there are critical assumptions in in business and and, and economics research, which um, I don't know if you would agree, probably need more attention. Sure, you've you've opened up you've
1: opened up can't I mean, there's there's a lot of to mix metaphors a little bit. There's a number of rabbit holes that we could jump da- down here. I mean, you've invoked the the question of whether a firm is merely a nexus of contracts. So that's one view of the firm that the firm really is not any different from a market. And, I, and you're right that I'm sort of saying that, that the firm is a nexus of contract in the sense that it is an alternative institutional structure. On the other hand, there are people uh, you know, like Jeff Hodgson or Scott Maskin who have argued that, well, legalists or Henry Hansman for that matter, who have argued that legal institutions matter and corporate law matters. And so we can say what's inside a firm and what's outside a firm because a firm, what's inside a firm has to obey a different set of rules than what are contracts out um outside of a firm. So let me let me take your remarks in a somewhat maybe a couple of different directions. So one direction is that the the vanishing hand story that you talked about has been criticized by by people uh on the following grounds. They can't really disagree that firms have become less vertically integrated, but they say, well, pro firms are less vertically integrated, but there's still as much managerialism because, because look, somebody's managing this. So if you look at something like Dell computer in the 1990s, early, early 21st century, Michael Dell buys everything, right? I mean, he hires people that deliver the computers, he buys all the parts from NVIDIA and all these people, doesn't make anything himself. Um, but surely, Michael Dell is coordinating all this. He's like a Chandlerian manager, even though, um, right? He, he's engaging in managerial activity, even though he doesn't own the parts that he is buying. The way, say, General Motors would have owned the parts that it was buying, right? In the in the middle of the of the twentieth century. And my response to that is, yeah, of course, right? So one stage of production may very well be management, right So management could be a stage of production if by management you mean kind of coordinating things, but management what I'm arguing is not that management doesn't exist, the coordination doesn't exist, um, but that it is uh, just one stage of production and that stage doesn't have to own that, that stage doesn't have to own the other stages. I think if you look back in the, the 19th century, I think it's a myth. To believe that there was no coordination even before large chandler and firms right there were there were these intermediaries wholesalers and so on who were buying and selling and they were doing a lot of they were doing a lot of coordination it wasn't just arm link arm flake transactions and that's actually the direction i want to take this conversation because that's the direction the book goes is to say look it's a mistake to think that that there's just there are just two options, right? And sort of Chandler and even Coase in the 1937 article, though maybe not later and stuff, portrays this as a sharp distinction, right? That you can either have the vanish the the invisible hand, or you can have the visible hand, and there's kind of nothing in between those things, right? On the one hand, you have um, anonymous spot transactions mediated only by price. On the other hand, you have bosses telling people what to do, and those are the only alternatives available to you. And one of the points I make in the book is, well, that's not true. And, and you miss a lot of it if you don't realize that what goes on between firms takes the form of complex contracting, right? Um, all kinds of, of intricate, restrictions and contracting and bespoke right um, you know contracts for for bespoke things and restrictions on territories and uh, pricing arrangements and all kinds of things that are hard to explain, um, but are where a lot of business gets transacted and that isn't it is really those kinds of transactions I think. That, that we see the complex contracting that we see in markets that could easily be absorbed into firms. Firms are less good at, absor- at absorbing right uh, anonymous spot contract because that they you know markets are always going to be better at that. But if you think about complex contracting between legally independent entities, that could be done visibly, in markets where people can see that contracting and all the restrictions that go with that contracting, or it can be done invisibly behind the corporate veil where nobody can see it, and it looks really kind of similar. Uh, it may not be as good, and I talked about that, right? There are reasons why contracting in the market with a legally separate entity has has maybe more efficient, right? For, for knowledge reasons, uh, taking advantage of local knowledge, taking advantage of uh, of local incentives, right? So there's a lot of reasons why it may be more efficient to do this in the decentralized market, but in a pinch, if you're forced to, you can bring it inside, right? You can do that kind of contracting inside the firm, right? So I, I don't know if that addresses what you were were, you were asking, so I can it sort of at least talks around.
0: Yes, and certainly brings us back into the Brings us back into the uh, main main uh, part of the book and how you try to illustrate these ideas as you go along and and make uh, an economic and and business history of the um, USA between the end of the nineteenth century and and the present day, primarily by re-inter- reinterpreting what other. People have done, and evidence that other people have provided. Uh, and, and
1: yes, this is a lot of deep dive. This was not a deep dive with movie, movie archives. This was a uh, a work of synthesis. Uh, you know, relying on a lot of stuff. You know, a lot of ER working papers and that sort of thing. Work that other people have done.
0: And in in that sense, or or one of the themes. Of there there are as 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 uh, there are a number of themes, substance themes, and. Sometimes sub sub themes and threads, yeah. uh, which which makes the book very very interesting. I mean, you have to be on your on on your toes to to <laughs> follow it because it it's uh it's quite um, yeah you can um, uh, uh, you can leave it aside you cannot leave it aside but at the same time yeah. you, you know you 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 have to pay attention. But um, antitrust and the effect of antitrust into this uh, this vanishing. Uh, uh, non-vanishing hand has, um, and and right. and you you question in. I mean, even very early in the book, you start to question some of the perceived wisdom as to the actors and what was the role of of antitrust. Um, would you like to expand a little bit on that, or do you think that there would be another thread that might be more interesting to to discuss? I
1: think that I mean,
0: I, is, you're right that, that that's
1: exactly. The way I think of the book, it has all these threads, and uh, you know, get dropped and picked up in different in, in different ways. Even if you want to get fancy, even light motifs throughout the book. Um, the main theme that runs through it is the one I just talked about, which is what we think of as the Chandlerian theme. Mm-hmm. That is why why vertical integration uh, at at you know at some points and at other points, and that's kind of tied up with. Uh, with a, a critique or deconstruction of the kind of progressive view of scientific management, right? That that uh, we can uh, we can supersede markets. We're smart enough to, to do better than markets because we have all these techniques of scientific management, like you know standardization and forecasting and all that kind of stuff. That uh, that um, the Chandler's big on, but by, by no means the, the strongest proponent of that uh, of that stuff. So I would say that's kind of the main theme, but you mentioned the antitrust theme, and, and that's another thing I wanted to do in this book, was kind of present a a, a coherent history of antitrust uh since it began in with the with the Sherman Act in the in early eighteen in, in the early eighteen nineties, and my take on it, and the 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 story that I'm telling, what I want people to take from this is not. I mean, there's a lot of people hear this kind of anti antitrust um, because you know I looked with clear eyes at what was going on, but that's less the point than uh than the following, which is if it is the case that uh, people have a choice between contracting, complex contracting visibly uh, in decentralized markets or engaging in very similar kinds of activities hidden inside the corporate veil, uh, then if you make it illegal, if you make it illegal for people to engage in these complex contracting, complex contract, and you call them um, unfair practices and anti-competitive behavior, and you make them illegal. What should you expect? What you should expect is that people are going to say, "Okay, well, I'm going to bring all this stuff in house, right?" And and so because the 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 antitrust um, uh, you know, institutions have been so hostile and and remain today, uh, it was renewed hostility today to. Um, these complex contracts, which which are very poorly understood, right? And because didn't even really, even economists, right, even co economists didn't understand these till the second half of the 20th century. Why Why did you, why firms made all of these kind of strange arrangements? If you look at them through, through a lens of, of hostility, if you will, and you say, well, I don't understand this, so it must be bad, then what you're going to do by making them illegal is you're going to, is you're going to strengthen the large vertically integrated corporation. And it sort of that's the great irony of antitrust. Uh, But if you make it illegal for people to, but for example, to buy technology on the market, I always talk today about killer acquisitions and we're going to stop big companies from buying technology on the market well, what's going to happen is what happened in the middle of the 20th century is firms are going to say, okay, I can't buy this on the market. I'm going to start creating these large internal corporate research and development divisions. And we're going to do all this stuff in house where you can't see it. Right. And I think in fact, some of that's starting to happen. Uh, well, some evidence that that that's probably starting to happen now as well. And, um, and so I think that it's a story of unintended consequences. And I think it's not a story that a lot of people have been telling. But let me take that back a little bit. I mean, I think economic historians have noticed this at various times, but it's always been somebody looking at a particular era and not noticing that it kind of happened all the time. You know, so so Alfred Chandler and George Bittlingmeier looked at the, the Sherman Antitrust Act and they said, well, look, the Sherman Antitrust Act Creating incentives um, for people to uh, stop uh, colluding and to create large corporations. And so, why do we get one of the reasons we got large corporations is because of the Sherman Antitrust Act. And you know, later in the century, people like David Mowry said, "Well, you know, uh, what we notice here is that when antitrust stopped people from buying technology from independent inventors on the market, what we see is a growth of a large internal research and development lab, right?" and, and um, um, you will see people like Herbert Hobenkamp saying this now nowadays, right? But my point is that it's always been true, right? It's always been true in the sense that if you make illegal uh, voluntary contracts in the open market, uh, they're not gonna just disappear, and you're not gonna have anonymous spot contract. What's gonna happen is people are gonna want, people need to make those kinds of arrangements and they're going to make those kinds of arrangements in a way that you can't see anymore because now it's going to be hidden inside the corporation and the corporation is going to become larger and stronger and more important. Uh, thanks for that.
0: Um, and i looking forward to what extent or, or what would be your thoughts when we're dealing with organizations where A. They are supranational super in, or they have grown to be supranational, such as, you know, the big, I'm, I'm talking about the big technology firms, Amazon, Facebook, Alba Meta, whatever have you. But not, not only that, which limits the, um, the power of, 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 of regulators, which are limited to, to sovereign country. And on the other hand, uh, in uh, from a more conceptual perspective these are organizations which um where, where economies of scale are prevalent we 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 teach or we we, we were taught uh in, in 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 the introduction of economics that industry that that were characterized by 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 economies of scales were rare where you know the utilities there were an exception and we shouldn't to, uh, you know, worry about those with that most firms, and I think that is intrinsic in the thinking of of Coase and certainly of of Chandler, is that they will describe the 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 you classical you know uh, U you know, shaped um, cost curve, yes. Whereas what we're facing in the twenty fifth twenty first century, and, and and some people are beginning to to think about that, is that you know do we have the tools? to deal with this type of new, new type of organization.
1: Well, let me take those in, 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 in reverse order, um, you know, uh, economies of scale, fixed costs are not new, that goes back to the, you know, at least to the railroads in the 19th century. That was the essential fact about the railroads, right? Was that they were, they were high fixed costs. And so, uh, if they priced at marginal costs, they went out of business, right? And so. But that was that was actually in some ways formative even to to economic theory. So it's not clear that we're seeing more we're seeing more economies of scale. I think what organizational economists would say. So what I would say is yes, there are lots of economies of scale. There always have been, but if you look carefully, the economies of scale are not throughout the entire. chain of production, they are at certain chains of production, right? So you mentioned utilities, think about electricity. We used to think about the electric company, right, it was having economies of scale, and what was the electric company? Well, it was everything, it was, it was generating, it was the wires, right, it was building, it was all that kind of stuff. And uh, in the late 20th century, people started to say, well, first of all, the economy scale started to decline in, in generating uh, in the late 20th century. But uh, people still sort of say, "Well, the this the economies of scale are really only at certain stages, right? There there are uh, economies of scale to to running wires to people's houses. There might be economies of scale in generating, although those decline. But then, not necessarily economies of scale in other things, right? So so you can have economies of scale without having vertical integration. So vertical integration." Uh, and and economies of scale do not right or, or even right, um uh some point David thesis uh, made uh, years even years ago that, that economies of scale do not imply uh, vertical integration because you can always contract with this what whatever stage has um whatever stage has economies of scale. The other point you mentioned was international right, and I should certainly admit that this is a very American book, <laughs> so I don't yeah. think very much. Yeah,
0: that was my next, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but that was my next question. But before yeah. before we move into that, before we move into that, there is there is an, an added uh, or a bolt-on effect to to what we were discussing a moment ago, which is not only economies of scale, but network economy. And and the advent of what Tease and Ro- Rochette and Tease, uh, Tirold have described as platform economics, which, which is not only do you have the economies of scale, but you also have you know this phenomenon where where the number of users becomes very very interesting and and uh, that that creates a, a, in certain sectors a different dynamic it, it's not prevalent and that's probably the, the one of the things that we need to bear in mind to the new generation of economists is that it's you know this is not prevalent all across the economy
1: right right I mean there were you know again there were network effects in the railroads so that's that's not a new thing I think what what we're seeing now is exactly what I was talking about. So, so what is a platform? A platform is one stage of production that that has all the economies of scale in it. I right? so you've got a platform like like Facebook or Amazon or uh, Apple or whatever it is. What it's really doing is is um, enabling lots of other contractual things around it because it is the stage that has economies of scale. They they. I think people have, and you can say this is kind of a legacy of the early days of thinking about network effects, you know, with Paul David days, that, well, they must be uh, economy-wide economies in scale, and, and uh, you know, one network, uh, there'll be one network to rule them all in, in all cases. And I think what we're seeing now is that that's not true. There are plenty of economies of scale, uh, but there's also competition, uh, the extent of the market is so large that you can actually see competition between platforms. So not just Apple versus Google, but but you know, now now you're you're seeing, you know, Elon Musk versus Facebook and and Twitter and uh TikTok and all of these things that are that are coming along that are that are not eating up the whole uh market, that are competing with each other because the market is so large, right? Smith's Adam Smith said the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. So when the extent of the market is, is enormous, uh, even when you have economies of scale, there can still be lots of players competing with each other at, at scale, but they are the scale providers, right? Right. But th- that's what a platform is. A platform is the stage of production with the big economies of scale, just as the railroads were a platform.
0: That's a super example. Thank you very much, and coming back to where I interrupted, this is very much an um, you know a, a story of American capitalism, uh, and so would would there be opportunities for you or others to look into this um, critically and and uh, see, well, you know, to what extent this is happening elsewhere in you know, with the advent of the European Union or NAFTA or uh, so yeah. on and so forth?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of, of course, um, I mean, I, I did it strictly is an American book because that's all I couldn't handle. It was plenty yeah well if you see the book. I thought there's plenty there already, uh and I couldn't handle uh, you know, doing the international thing. Chandler did that later on, wrote an, an international book, but but this is not uh this is not an international uh book. I mean just to remark though on on the point you made about regulators, um I, mean, I guess in one sense it's true that it, an international company can play regulators off against each other, but on the other hand uh, you can also get a kind of um, a tragedy of the anti-commons effect, right with multiple regulators right So so think about the the Microsoft Activision plaque that's going on now that the U.S, Right, the, the FTC tried to block it, and the and the court the courts uh, uh, told them no, you can't you can't block this. Uh, but the British have blocked it, right? So so uh, you know Microsoft now is going to have to work around the fact that 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 somebody has vetoed this, even though other people have not vetoed it. So I think that can work both ways, right? That 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 maybe you can use. Your international character get around regulators. But on the other hand, um, you, you, when you have to deal with multiple regulators, uh, that can be a problem. And in fact, uh, I talk about that in the book in the context of the American states, right? That was sort of, I think there's an analogy there that we could think about, right? That but, but, uh, this is, you know, this was a situation in the United States in the, in the 19th century that the states had a tremendous amount of power. And the corporations wanted to move power up to the federal level because they were they wanted to get around the kind of roadblock, the kind of anti-commons that they were finding from uh, you know different regulations for every state. Some states trying to block them, some not trying to block them, and so on. And they wanted they wanted you know to to rise above this. And so, so we, the we corporations themselves were part of the incentive for moving a lot of regulation to the to the federal level and and away from the state level.
0: Well, thank you very much for 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 your thoughts today, Richard. And my my final question is, what are you working on now, or what what would be your your next big uh, project?
1: <laughs> I'm not sure. I have it was in the short run. Um, Things. You mentioned uh, Frank Knight. I'm uh, writing a paper about Frank Knight for, for somebody because I wrote one 30 years ago. So I've been invited to a conference to write another paper about Frank. Well, uh, my big project It's actually a, a little project. Is, um, I'm in the middle of a short book. Uh, fifty thousand words. Uh, basically, writing a my, a course on economics and organization that I've taught for many years. So it's going to come out uh, in Edward, Edward Elgar's uh, Advanced Introductions series, and I'm hoping to finish that by the end of this year. Although that's probably um, that's probably optimistic. So so that's the thing I'm going to be working on. Now after that, I don't know. Uh, I think it won't be. I'm pretty sure it won't be international, taking the present book international. I think if I decide that I have another big project in me, it's going to be uh, going in the opposite direction and looking at the United States in an earlier period. I'm very interested in seeing institutions. Um, you know, I consider myself to be an institutional economist. And so, uh, so I'm getting more and more interested in early American history and, and uh, institutions in the United States, so if I do anything, which may not happen, uh, I may be more likely to be in that direction than in the international direction.
0: Well, we we we, we hope you can le- let us know when that new book on organizational um, economics is, is out. As as we will, I would certainly love to talk to you again here at New Books Network um, about it. And uh, yeah, certainly something I'll keep my eye on for my own teaching as well. Um, Richard, thank you very much for being with us and hope to talk to you again soon here in your network.
1: Well, thank you for, for having me, I've, I've enjoyed it very much.